0: If you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, we're jumping back into this Evidence and Assurance series. If you were tracking with us last fall, uh, we pushed pause on it as we approached the season of Advent and we worked through the Christmas season and then we came back at the first of the year with a, a message series entitled Mission Critical, looking at some of the critical pieces that, are, that God has given us or, or that are required of us if we're going to be faithful to our mission as a church. Now we're jumping back into 1 John to finish it up over the next three weeks before we jump into the Ten Commandments leading up to Easter. And so, 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have it, it'll be on the screen for you as I read it. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 reads, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Now, if you weren't tracking with us in the fall, whenever we were working through First John, what we said at the very outset of that series is this, is that when John writes the gospel of John, he's writing to persuade people of who Jesus is, that they might come to know him personally and have a life in him. But when he writes the letter of 1 John, he's writing to assure people who've already come to know Jesus that they do know Jesus. In other words, how can I know that I'm a Christian? How can I be assured that I'm a Christian? And throughout the letter of 1 John, John gives over and over again the same three tests. In other words, he says, if you want to know if you're a Christian, here's three ways, three things to look at in your life to know whether or not you've come to know Jesus truly and rightly or you just had kind of an emotional experience at camp as a child, okay, where you walked an aisle, cried some tears, prayed a prayer, and then went on about your life. How do you know if you really know Jesus? And John says there's three tests. First, it's, there's the test of, of, of confession, of right belief, of right doctrine, what do you believe about Jesus. Second, he says there's a test of, how, of the way that you love. The way that you love God and the way that you love His people. And third, he says that there's a test of your conduct. The way that you live. Are you pursuing and striving after righteousness? He says there's these three tests. And there's perhaps no other place in John's letter that these three tests come together so succinctly in one, one spot than in these five verses in 1 John chapter 5. And one of the things that I want you to see this morning about these three tests, right, as you evaluate in your own life, as you look in the mirror for yourself and say, am I a Christian? Do I know Jesus? Right? Do I believe what is true about Him? Do I love Him and love His people? And do I strive after righteousness and seek to put sin to death? So as you look in the mirror, I want you, there's something I want you to know about these three tests is that they are interdependent upon each other, not independent of each other. In other words, they work together, not apart from each other. Not, you can't pull one of the tests out and make it the test. Right? Let me see if I can break it down for you this way. The Apocalypse Tapestry, uh, this is a, I think a pretty decent illustration. The Apocalypse Tapestry okay, is this massive, massive tapestry. I've got a picture of it for you. It's a massive tapestry that spans a whole hall of a museum. Okay, and that Apocalypse Tapestry was woven in the late 1300s and it depicts scenes from the book of Revelation. Why don't you throw that picture up there? It's not in there. All right, so it didn't show up in there. All right, never mind, I don't have a picture of it for you. But it spans, uh, it's hanging in a French museum. It was made in the late 1300s and it depicts these scenes from the book of Revelation. And the tapestry was made in six different sections. Each of them is 78 feet wide by 20 feet high. It comprises 90 different scenes from that book. As those p- individuals wove that tapestry together, there's only 71 of the original 90 scenes that survive today. And each scene has a blue or black background, with al- alternating between the different sections. And they took considerable effort to produce. Consider this: it took 50 to 84 man years of effort. Right, think about the collective effort it took to produce this. 50 to 84 man years of effort by the weaving teams that were commissioned to create this tapestry. And it's dominated by all these different colors of blues and reds and ivories and oranges and greens and silver uh, thread woven into the wool and to the silk. Now if you were to go to that French museum and you were to try to cut out one section of that tapestry or pull out one thread of that tapestry, you would not have the entirety of the tapestry. And you would likely spend a significant amount of the rest of your life in a French prison somewhere. Right? But you would, if you pulled out one thread in isolation and tried to evaluate it, you would not be looking at the whole tapestry. Right? You would not be seeing the whole picture because you cannot understand the significance of one individual thread apart from the greater tapestry that it's woven to be a part of and it's the same way with these tests it's the exact same way with these tests you can't pick one of the three out and say I've I've, I'm a Christian right because I have right doctrinal beliefs or I'm a Christian because I'm a really loving person or I'm a Christian right because I live a very moral and upright upstanding life. John says it doesn't work that way. These three tests are like three threads that are to be woven together into the life of an individual. And he says that's how you know when you look in the mirror if you indeed are a Christian, is that these three tests are woven together, not pulled apart as separate threads to be analyzed or isolated from each other. Right, because right belief, right, right the, the right, like loving others and living well, right, None of those are the, the ace of spades. I played a lot of spades growing up as a kid, right? And the ace of spades does what to every other card on the pile? It trumps it, right? None of these tests in isolation from the others is the trump card for, for Christian assurance. None of them is. They're all intended to be threads that are woven together. Look, at what, look, at, look in these five verses with me real quick. John highlights all three of these tests. In verses 1, 4, and 5, he highlights the test of doctrine. He says, everyone that believes that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God, that He is God in the flesh, God incarnate. Everyone that believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So the doctrinal test, there's a certain, there's certain doctrinal core of Christianity that centers around the person of Jesus. Things that we must believe about who he, who he is, from where He's come, what He's accomplished, where He's gone, the fact that He's coming again. There's certain things that must be believed. But not only is it the test of doctrine in these verses, but it's also the test of love. Love for God and love for the church. Look what he says in verse 1 as well. Everyone who loves the Father... Loves those who have been born of Him. In other words, you know you've been born of Him, like come alive in God, right? Not just because you've given assent to some doctrinal confession, but because there's a love now that is radiating in your heart for God as your Father and for the rest of His family, right? All All of your siblings who are also related to Him by faith. Right, so there's this love. And then in verses 2 and 3, John highlights the test of our living, our obedience, of keeping and obeying God's commands. He pulls those three together in these five verses to say they are threads woven together and you can't pull them apart. You cannot pull them apart. But I'm afraid that for many, perhaps some who are raised in, in, in kind of religious circles, they've tried to take one of those tests and make it the test. Make it the trump card. Right, those, listen, consider this, those who were raised in an environment with very conservative moral values, they might pick out right behavior and say, this is it, this is the test, right? So let me say something to you this morning, if that's you, if you're raised in a very conservative moral environment, right, and you've, you've done your best to live a very straight laced moral life, upstanding with integrity, right, that doesn't mean that you're a Christian if you don't love the church, if you don't love God, and if you don't have faith in Jesus, Right? You might be a very moral upstanding person but without love for God, love for His people and a faith in the risen Son of God you're not a Christian. I don't know any way to say it more bluntly. (laughs) And I like to say things rather bluntly at times. Second, those who are raised in an environment with a strong emphasis on the Bible, they may pick out right doctrine as the test. But listen, just because you made a profession of faith in Jesus as a child, adolescent or young adult, doesn't mean that you're a Christian. If there's no love for God in your heart, no love for God's people in your heart, and there is no striving personally after righteousness in your life. You're not setting your your feet on the path of righteousness to walk after Him. Okay? Okay? Or maybe perhaps you were raised in an environment with a strong emphasis on loving and accepting all kinds of people. Where maybe you were taught things like, it doesn't really matter what you believe so long as you're sincere in your beliefs and so long as you love and accept all kinds of people who are around you. But listen, just because someone acts in a loving way towards other people doesn't mean they're a Christian. If they don't have faith in the risen Son of God who was crucified and buried on their behalf and they don't have a love, uh, they don't have uh, they're not personally striving after righteousness. They don't love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. So you see, you can't take one of these and isolate it. It's kind of like a triangle, right? If you, try, if you have a triangle in front of you, you're trying to take one leg off of it, what do you have? Not a triangle. No longer a triangle. You have a line, a stick now, but you don't have a triangle. And in fact, the other two just kind of, the other two sides just collapse on themselves. That's what John's trying to say to us, that these things are interdependent, not independent. Right? So this morning, in the time that we have left, what I want to do is focus on one of them. I want to focus on one of them. One of these three tests, and it's the one that's found in verses 3 and 4, where John talks about the test of obedience. Because he makes a very bold declaration here. In verses 3 and 4, listen to what John says again. He says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now in verses 3 and 4, when John uses that term world, he's using that term world in the same way that he uses it back in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 when he wrote, do not love the world or the things in the world. And so what John means by the world here, in fact, he says God's commandments are not burdensome for those who have been born of God for the precise reason that they've overcome the world by their faith. That's what he's saying. And so what is the relationship between the commandments of God not being burdensome having overcome, and having overcome the world by our faith? That's what I'm going to try and show us this morning and then draw on an application for us. Right? so when John uses that word world, what he's talking about is not the material creation that God has made, right? The rocks and the plants and the trees and the streams. Not, nor is he talking about the people who populate the world that God has made as well. What John is talking about here is the same thing that the Scriptures talk about in other places when it talks about the world and it's talking about this it's talking about a system of values priorities and perspectives that are organized against the authority and rule of God in the lives of his creatures it's a way of thinking it's a way of ordering your life it's a way of valuing it's the way you set your priorities it's having a particular perspective and outlook on life That's the world that John's referring to here, a system of values, priorities, and perspectives. And in the Bible, the world is opposed to God, listen, like Lex Luthor is opposed to Superman. Okay? The world is opposed to God like the Joker is opposed to Batman. Or the Claw is opposed to Black Panther. Right? The world is opposed to God like Ross Barnett and George Wallace were to Martin Luther King Jr. and Medgar Evers in the 1960s you don't know who those people are, go look them up, right? There there was this, this different perspective on how life is supposed to be ordered, how life is supposed to work, on how things are supposed to be done. And in 2.16, if you go back into 2.16, John lays out three characteristics of this worldliness. Other Older preachers called it worldliness, right? What does worldliness look like? These values and these perspectives and these positions that are opposed to God. And in 2.16, John says there's three characteristics of them. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. When John says, don't love the world or anything in the world, he says, this is what the worldliness looks like. This is what I'm talking about. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that word desires in the Greek in 2.16 is a word that's actually a compound word that means inordinate passions, right? Or overheating Okay, Use it, think of it that way. Now, I know there's probably some pyros in the room, right? Some of you just like fires. I know, I've been to your houses. Okay, you have fire pits in your backyard and bottles of lighter fluid, okay? And so, if you, if, think of it this way. This overheating, these inordinate desires, these passions that John's describing... He's referring to what may be morally neutral things that become ultimate things in our life because we're so inflamed and enraged for their pursuit to pursue and get them or to keep them, right? These inordinate desires. Think of it this way. It's like not, not just a, a crackling fire there in the fireplace, but it's a fire that's raging out of control because somebody squirted lighter fluid on it and it just kind of erupted or a raging wildfire out in, in California that's devastating houses right? It's claiming lives. That's the kind of desire that John speaks of here. That's why the old King James Version translated this word lusts. The lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes. And listen, each of these lusts or each of these passions has to do with what we order our lives around. When John talks about the over-desires of the flesh he's talking about ordering your life this is what worldliness is ordering your life around your appetites right it's listen let me let me see if i can break it down for you this way it's one thing to eat to live it's another thing to live to eat you know the difference right it's one thing to eat to live to have caloric intake and nourishment and nutrition right and even do enjoy a good meal at times but when what you're in, what you're constantly thinking about is where's my what what am I gonna eat next, right? Where are we gonna go next? What are we gonna do next? Right? If that's what's constantly on the forefront of your mind is where like like your, your like your Facebook feed just might be filled with recipes, right? Um, you've got all those things saved. Uh, you you can't stomach a, a poor meal, okay? Like ramen noodles. I lived off of those things in college. But, but it, it's this over-desire of appetites for food and drink at times. And this is why you see the inordinate amount of obesity in our culture. is because people are over-desirous of food. And they use food to cope with the realities of their life. That's worldliness. That's ordering your life around your appetites. Or they use drink to cope with the realities of their life and so they end up either as, a, as, as, as an alcoholic or they end up obese. Right, that's, that's worldliness. Right, when good things become ultimate things. Or the other, another appetite like rest and leisure. It's a good thing to take a break every once in a while. It's a good thing to have hobbies that we enjoy to do. But whenever you work to play, right? when you live for the weekends... Because your job brings you no satisfaction or fulfillment because you've chosen it in a very worldly way because you think about what's the maximum amount of money that I can make versus in a world-loving way, how can I serve the needs of those who are around me? Right? That's worldliness. It's, it's so, so you work all week long to get to the weekend so you can really have fulfillment and enjoy life. That's worldliness. That's worldliness. It's ordering your life around your appetites. That's an over of the flesh. He also talks about the overdesire of the eyes. It has to do with ordering your life around your appearances. Ordering your life around appearances. Listen, the eyes, many of us have heard this before, right on a little Hallmark card somewhere, the eyes are the window to the soul. Right, so I can peer deep within them and I can see what's going on. That's not really the case in the Bible. In the Bible, the eyes are not some neutral panes of glass that you could look into, but the eyes are more like a lamp. Right, they don't show you what's in the soul, but they shape what's in the soul. See, what you set your eyes on begins to have a shaping effect in your life, down deep. And listen, if your eyes are constantly fixed upon appearances, it's going to shape the kind of person that you are. Right, your physical appearances in beauty, and fashion, and fitness, it's going to shape the kind of values and priorities that you have. If it's material appearances in homes, in cars, in possessions. It might be professional appearances in resumes, networks, connections that you have. But you're constantly fixated on how you appear to the rest of the world. Right? That is the, the, the lust of the eyes. Or the pride of life, he says. It has to do with ordering your life around your ego. And this is perhaps the most dangerous of the three the most dangerous of the three listen to what cs lewis said about pride he said this he says pride can be used to beat down the simpler vices a teachers often appeal to a boy's pride to make him behave decently many a man has overcome cowardice or ill temper by learning to think that they are beneath his dignity that is by pride he says the devil laughs He is perfectly content to see you become chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided He is setting up in you a dictatorship of pride. He would be just as happy to see your ingrown toenails cured if He could give you cancer. For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the possibility of love, contentment, or even common sense. Even common sense. Listen, He would be content for us to have pride rise in our hearts So long, if if everything on the outside looked like we were held together and we were the epitome of spiritual life, but if it was all coming from a root of pride, that would be exactly where the enemy wanted you. Because the pride of life, listen, have you ever been been to the fair, right, and seen the hall of mirrors? That's what the pride of life is like. Is that everywhere you look, you see yourself, but you never see yourself as you really are. You always see yourself as what you perceive and project yourself to be. Right? So you think that you are deserving of recognition, you're deserving of applause, you're deserving of power, you're deserving of control. It's all a life that's absorbed with self. How do you know if that's you? Let me give you a few indicators this morning. And I got these from a guy who preached the sermon in the 1800s with a lot of old English and so I cleaned it up a little bit so it's a little easier for us to understand. Listen to what he says. David Tappan said this. He said, the ways that you can know, I'm going to give you six of them. He gives more, I'm going to give you six of them. I'm going to run through them real quick. He says this. One of the ways you know that your life is absorbed with self and pride your life is ordered around your ego is this, is when things of the world dominate your thoughts and crowd out serious thoughts of God. That's a red flag of worldliness in your life. In other words, when your mind just naturally gravitates toward your appearances, the applause that you receive, your physical appetites, that's where your mind just continues to go over and over and over again. And it's like weeds that erupt in a field that crowd out any healthy turf grass. Right? And they crowd out serious thoughts of God. You can't contemplate God because your mind's always wandering to what does what my home look like? What does my car look like? What does my, my 401k look like? What is, what is my peer, how do I appear to other people? Right? The thoughts of the world and worldliness crowd those out. Second, that when the things of the world dominate our conversations with others, when that's all we ever talk about. So it's all we ever think about and it's all we ever talk about. But there's no serious reflection and conversation about the things of God in our lives. About His Word in our lives. We don't talk about it as families. We don't talk about it as friends. Third, when we're discontent with our portion of the world's possessions. In other words, we're shot through with worry about what we don't have. We look around us and we see everything that other people do have and we compare ourselves to them and we worry about what we don't have. Then, on the flip side of that, fourth, when we're unable to trust God with the blessings of His providence. In other words, when we're shot through with worry about what we do have. So we're worried about what we don't have and trying to get it and we're worried about what we do have and trying to keep it in our worldly possessions. Fifth, fifth, he says, when we relate to others only on the basis of worldly distinction. So the only people that we engage in conversation are the people who are like us, who think like us, who vote like us, who drive the same kind of vehicles that we do, only buy American products, all that stuff, right? We only relate to people upon those worldly distinctions. And then sixth, sacrifice godly principles for worldly possessions. When we sacrifice integrity for a leg up financially. One of the ways to know that you're, in fact, your life is shot through with worldliness. Now, why did I go off on that tangent? Some of you are like, that's a tangent. It's not a tangent. I'm going to bring you back here for a moment. Listen, world, this is what worldliness is in the eyes of the Scriptures. But John says, John says in verses 3 and 4. That those who have been born of God, they keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Why is his commandments not burdensome? Why is keeping God's commands not like carrying a millstone on our back and dredging along about our path in life? Why is it not crushing us beneath it for those who have been born of God? He says because you've overcome the world by your faith in the risen Son of God. Listen, the commands of God for those whose lives are, in, are, 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 are flooded with worldliness, God's commands are burdensome to them. Do you know why? Because whenever our lives are wrapped up in worldliness, in our appetites, in our appearances, in our pride, our ego, our, the applause of other people, when our lives are wrapped up in that, here's what happens. This is where our our lives are ordered around. The commands of God come to us. And Jesus says things like, if you want to come after me, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. In other words, you've got to lay down your appearances. You've got to lay down your appetites at times. You've got to lay down the applause and recognition of other people. You've got to lay those things down in order to follow me. And so if our lives are shot through with worldly ways of thinking and a worldly way of living and the commands of God come to us, it seems like they're coming to us to crush us, to destroy us. How can I lay lay down the very things that I'm deriving life from? From other people's applause, from my own appetites, from my own appearance in other people's eyes. How can I let that go in order to follow after Jesus when He calls me? Because the thing that I think that I'm getting life from, you're calling me to lay aside. So it seems like it's a burden, like a crushing stone tied to our feet and we're thrown to the bottom of Lake Ray Hubbard. Don't want to know who's down there. I'm sure there are some. But we're we're thrown to the bottom of Lake Ray Hubbard and we sink and we drown and we die. But listen, for those who've been born of God, For those who've come to taste of God's kindness and of His mercy. For those who've come to know God personally through His Son. For those who've come to let go of. They've come to let go of their physical appetites. They let go of their appearances. They let go of the applause and recognition of other people. Their pride. They've laid that aside to come follow after Jesus. And they know Him and He satisfies them. He, gives, he, is the, he is the source of life for them. Not all these other things that they were used to build their lives upon and order their lives around. They're not ordering them around Jesus and who He is and what He's done. Then God's commands whenever they come to us, they're not burdensome any longer, but they're blessings to us. Do you know why, church? Here's why. Because the spell of the world, the curse of the world has been broken and now you see appearances and appetites and applause for what they are. They're only hollow and dim substitutes for real, true life. Got a little excited, almost fell off the stage. (laughs) You come to see them for what they are. Now listen, I know I've got on a, a shirt with some pink in it this morning. I'm about to lose my man card. I've already lost it a few times by giving this illustration. But listen, there was a show on ABC several years back. It was called Once Upon a Time. Some of you, especially ladies, you might remember watching this. Some of you dudes are like, I can't believe he's saying this. I used to respect him. He liked to fish and play ball and, and all those kinds of things. But listen, Once Upon a Time was a show that, that the basic, the basic storyline of the show was this. Right? You had the evil queen right, from the Snow White drama that unfolds. You had the evil queen whose life at every turn in the fantasy world right, was being thwarted. She could not fulfill her evil plans and purposes there to break up Snow White and Prince Charming. This is why I think many of you ladies gravitated toward that show. But I was captivated by just the larger storyline, not necessarily all the romance. But, but in, in the show, so what she does, because she can never succeed in breaking them apart, is she casts a curse that would take them from their world into our world, into a small town in rural Maine called Storybrooke. And in that town, these characters that are transported from the fantasy world into the real world, they've lost this sense of who they are. They don't know their true identities any longer. So Snow White thinks she's just Mary Margaret, some school teacher. And Prince Charming doesn't know he's Prince Charming, right? He's just David, some dude who lives in Storybrooke, Maine. See, you're like, you know too many of these names. (laughs) right? So here they are, they're living out their lives, but they don't know who they are. Right? Until true love's kiss. Right? When Mary, Margaret and David, they finally get, to get back together and they kiss. And what happens whenever true love's kiss takes place is the curse is broken. And what ha- the scales are removed from their eyes and they remember in a moment who they are. They, their identity comes back to them and they look into each other's eyes and they realize This this is what I was made for. This is who I was made for. And listen, I want you to know, family, that that is what is needed in our lives if we are to see God's commands as not being burdensome. We need the curse of the world to be lifted from us by true love's kiss. Our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, To be born of God lifts the curse. It lifts the the scales off of our eyes. And all of a sudden we see applause and we see appetites and we see appearances as this dim, hollow reflection that we were giving ourselves to before we knew who we really were and who we were really made for. But when that curse is lifted and we see who we are and who we were made for, then we see the commands of God as blessings. Blessings not burdens so listen one of the ways to know if you've truly been born of God and this is the test of obedience is how do you see the commands of God do you look at his command for purity in your life and do you see that as a burden as a duty or do you see it as a blessing and a delight do you look at his command to be generous And do you say, God's just trying to get into my pocketbook so I have less discretionary income for all my hobbies on the weekend because that's where I really find life. Or do you look at that command and say, it's such a blessing and it's a delight because God has given me so much. I want to return financially, freely to Him, all that He's blessed me with. Do you look at God's commands for purity and generosity as burdens or as blessings? Do you see God's Command for sacrificial love and being inconvenienced in the lives of other people as a burden or as a blessing, as a duty, I guess I've got to do this now, or as a delight that God was sacrificial toward me in the sending of His Son for in my place and for my sins. So I want to give my life away for others in the same way that He has given His life away for me. It is a blessing to do that and an honor. Do I see God's command of holiness as a burden or blessing of saying God listen I'm going to uncap my yes to you I'm going to hold nothing back from you I'm going to give and yield my full life for the rest of my life over to you is that a burden in your eyes or as a blessing see when the curse of the world gets lifted and you're no longer evaluating everything by applause and appearance and appetites All of a sudden, God's commands as they come, they're not like stones that are going to crush you underneath them, but they're like stones upon which you will stand and upon which you will find true life. Is that you this morning? So Isn't the only way to have that shift take place in your life is to be kissed by God's Son. Is to know His affection in your life. To know His deep and unending and undying love for you. That would lead Him from the halls of heaven to literally experiencing hell on earth. As He is tortured and crucified in your place and for your sin. And that you would place your faith and trust in Him to know His kindness, to know His tenderness, to know His mercy. Has that happened for you? If it is not, then the commands of God will always just be a burden. But if it has, they will be a blessing. They will be a Blessing. Last thing I want to say is this, and we're going we're to finish early. Last thing I want to say is this. Listen, these tests, they don't produce life. I want you to see that very clearly. They don't produce life. But they are products of life. Look at what John says again. I want to call your attention back to what he says in verse 1. Everyone who has been born of God. First, the new birth. Second, the products of it. You believe the doctrinal truths about who God is and who His Son is. You love His family. You love Him as your Father. And you walk in obedience to Him because His commands are not burdensome because He has set you free from seeing everything through the lens of appetite, applause, and... the other one. Yeah, It is escaping me at the moment. I'm just being real. So listen, if you have come to know God rightly and truly, embrace, embrace His commands and find them to be like the umbrella that shelters you from so much of the storms of life. And if you have not come to know Him, I want to invite you to do so this morning. That you would stop trying to build an identity and a life on appearances, on appetites, and on applause. And that you would come to find true life and true identity in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Himself, by placing your faith and trust in Him. And if that's you this morning and you'd like to visit about that, at the end of our service, I'll be at these doors out here. I would love to spend time with you this morning talking and praying about what it means to trust in Jesus for you. Let me close us in prayer. Father, we're thankful today for the mercy and grace of your Son. We're thankful that you've not left us to figure out this life on our own, but you've given us your Word to to guide us And Father, You've given us Your Son to save us. Father, I pray this morning that for those who have come to know You, they've experienced true love's kiss, the affections of a father demonstrated through his son. I pray that they would come under the umbrella of Your commands because they know that is a place of refuge, that is a place of protection, that is a place of blessing in their lives. And so if perhaps they have been resisting God, I pray that You would melt their resistance today with a renewed taste and experience of Your love for them. To know that indeed Jesus is better as we've already sung today. And even as we're about to sing that you would come and take our hearts which are prone to wander and prone to leave this god who has loved us well and the one that we love and that you would secure them and they would stand upon the truth of your word father there are people in the room this morning who know where perhaps they have stepped outside the umbrella and they're experiencing the storm of life, perhaps of their own making, God, give them the grace of repentance to step back under it this morning to know the refuge of their God who would want to shelter them under His wings. And for those who have never come to know You, Father, I ask this morning that for the first time that You would awaken them who you are and your love for them and what they've done is they've run from you and rebelled from you and tried to build a life and an identity apart from you and no matter how far they've run Father I pray that your hand would reach pray it would reach to where they are and that you would save mightily And then as they taste of true love's kiss in their own life, the love of the Father through His Son, that they would begin to put their lives back back together under the authority of Your Word, under the authority of Your commands, and they would taste of the blessing that is found there. We pray in Jesus' name.